Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Going I'm not going sober, sober, we sober, are sober. Screaming. <laughs> That's this for meetings being live streamed. Yeah, I'm not. No, I don't want that. I do. I legit think that uh, pot helps me as a husband and a and a, and a father. So I don't understand the point in dropping that for me, but booze, booze, I understand the point of dropping. Welcome to Value After Hours. Hours. (laughs) And we're live. I am one of the hosts, Bill Brewster, with my esteemed colleagues, Tobias Carlisle and Jake Taylor. I missed you guys. Thank you to the 10. It's been a while. We're sorry that we uh, took a break. It was good. Completely disconnected. Didn't check Twitter once. Bro, I spent some of my break listening to Ray Dalio, and I'm pretty convinced the U.S. is fucked. Oh, man. Already? We're getting yeah. into that. <laughs> yeah, I'm there. I'm, I'm all in on, sh- like, short the U.S. Well, let's, all right. let's, let's save that for a topic, but I want to <laughs> let's unpack that one. Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah. Toby, what's uh, other than the imminent demise of the, the Great Republic? What, uh, what do you have for today? <laughs> I, um, I'm just blanking on it. I sent you guys my little link yesterday and uh, now yes. day in the sun, the Widowmaker trade. The Widowmaker. Oh uh, yeah. Cheap stocks to finally have their day in 2022. I think that that article has been written every year since 2016. Yeah. <laughs> that, I did, that was, the, that was one where they describe it as the Widowmaker trade. So I just want, that's, that's the only thing I want to talk about. Oh my God. What do you got JT? Uh, I have a, piece prepared that's a little tribute to eo wilson who passed away over our break um and it's just a really cool guy and i want to highlight some of the stuff that he he shared with the world that sounds good you want me to go first yeah let's check up yeah let's jump into why we're why we're doomed i like it i like it um i guess you know so first of all uh he was on with William Green on We Study Billionaires. Good signing for Preston Pish and Stig Broderson, by the way. Yeah, I'm that was interesting. Selfishly happy because it adds uh, the podcast back to my listening uh, repertoire, at least for a while. Well, what about the uh, mastermind updates? With uh... <laughs> <laughs> I, did two, I did two a quarter now. Yeah. I pop, I pop in occasionally. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> The uh, but the other thing is uh, he was on with Lex Friedman or oh, Friedman, yeah. uh, and it was quite good. And I, you know, I don't know. I, I think uh, the stumble. I, you know, he had that answer on China. I can't recall what it is, but uh, the perception of the answer was not exactly great. I for one welcome out <laughs> new overlords. Is that what he said? Oh, I don't know. Uh, but like, I, I um, that involved hot dogs. Was, was there no hot dog in there? <laughs> I guess what I would say is like, I do, I do sort of think that he's, these two interviews are probably worth listening to. He's going over the same thing a lot. Uh, and I, I sort of wonder why he's doing it, but he, I, and I also, I don't know how he handicaps things, but he's put like, uh, I'm bound to mess this up. Sorry to our Bridgewater fan. Holler at me sometime, by the way. Uh, like I think he's got like the probability of a civil war in the U S approaching a third and the probability of armed conflict with China approaching third. a third. A third. That's what like I was a, saying. I was like, you play the simulation three times and we go to war once that seems a bit high. 
Robert Mackay or Mackay says Dalio is kind of deterministic. No, I don't think so. I think he's very probabilistic. See, I think he's deterministic. That's good. Let's talk about that in a little bit. We'll come back to that. Okay. I don't want to interrupt you. I don't want to derail you. Keep going. I I mean, I don't know how to summarize it. What's the other third? We just muddle through. Yeah, well, I just I mean, look, man, I just think that like fundamentally. uh, Like if you look at our politics, they're super, super polarized. We're spending a ton of time fighting amongst ourselves. Uh, I think that it's hard to argue that the society is as hungry as some of the emerging countries. We're definitely spending more than we're making. And like, you know, that's not that doesn't feel great to me. So, uh, I, you know, I, I would say uh, check out what he says and listen to him more than my summary of him. But uh, stock prices, I, bro. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, but the, I mean, that's but that's part of that's like dollar debasement. I mean, maybe not relative to other currencies. Right. But I mean, this is what Preston was talking about a while ago when he said, like, versus M2 or whatever, you're only up six yeah. percent in a decade or whatever. I don't know. Not impossible for me to, to buy into the theory. So the war part was the main takeaway, the biggest thesis part. Uh, I ju- I think like really uh, where we rank on education of the middle of our country, like like primary education. No, we still have a monopoly on great universities, and that's a good thing. But um, you know, I I don't. I think the fighting amongst ourselves, the not producing nearly as much as we're. Uh, buying and the undereducation of most people. I, I viscerally agree with those. I haven't put data to it. Uh, and, it, you know, it's just not very uplifting. Uh, gents, we got a 25 pound uh, shout out from Colin Moore. Thanks, brother. I didn't see your name. I saw the icon and I knew who it was. Um, that is what is up. That's a lot. Here's my here's my problem. The Berkshire AGM Guinness Fund. Good, excellent. Yeah. Nice. We'll make sure we get you one of those there. I'm I may just bring you an edible. I may not go back to booze. <laughs> Fair warning. I'm going to be there this year. JT's going to be there. Are you coming, Bill? Are you doing Berkshire? Oh yeah. All right. Good. We're on. Miss Berkshire. Hell no. Is it going to be on? Omicron's uh, not going to derail us. I sure hope so. I mean, uh, Daily Journal is remote. I saw. Oh, that's a bummer. I know. How far away is Daily Journal? February. Okay. Mid February. Three months. Yeah. Ooh, Maybe summer will be looking a little bit be looking a little bit better. Yeah. Let's get back to Dahlia. I think that I think that Dahlia markets himself as being probabilistic and he has all of these, you know, radical honesty, the transparency and all that stuff. And then I read his stuff. And I always think this is so deterministic, like including that article, like why the economy is a beautiful machine. It's just the wrong analogy. And then you think about like what, what macro is, is often doesn't have to be this way, but to get the, um, to get the convexity in the trades, uh, you need to get a number of things that occur in sequence, right? And, that's the way that the macro guys often think about this stuff. And so Dalio is a macro guy and he thinks about these machines that have all of this stuff occurs in sequence and you get this output at the end. And I just fundamentally disagree that that's how anything works. It's way too unpredictable to say that there's a one third chance of a civil war in the States is bonkers. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, so one, I may have miscited that, but I don't think I did. I think he actually said that. Uh, and two, I do think there's some marketing speak when you're assigning probabilities. Like I would be interested to see the card on his, uh, on his chest or whatever that he wears around Bridgewater that, that talks about his strengths and weaknesses. I, I would not be shocked if one like of the middles. weaknesses is in public. Sometimes you are a little bit hyperbolic on your probabilities. I mean, I get it. You got to like to get a tent, like as a marketing tool, it's pretty good. Here we are talking about it. I don't know if I want my portfolio manager talking like that, though. Well, it matters what he does, not what he says. I'm not trying to say he's doing stuff and saying different things. I don't want that to come across. I know I just said it, but I'm not trying to say it. Um, yeah, I don't I just I don't know how much is like that's a true assignment of probabilities and how much of that is I'm speaking to the common person via a podcast and in order to wake them up. I'm going to say this probability. I still think it means you're dismissed by a lot of other people who are just like, that's just ridiculous. One third, like if, even saying one in 10 would be extreme. Like the, the, the U S has had a civil war. It was a long time ago under an entirely different system. And civil wars aren't they don't, like if you go back and read any ancient history, like civil wars happen all the time in every every little town all the time, but they they don't happen at you know peak prosperity. Uh, and I realise that that's not evenly distributed, but I think that people have got a lot of money at the moment. Maybe uh, drain away some of that money in it. Did he put a timeline on that? Because like that's another that radically changes your probability. Twenty twenty two. No, I thought he said in the next decade. Okay. All right, yeah. That does change the calculation a little bit, but I still don't think so. I still think that's way too high. I I tend to agree with you. I also don't know what the definition of a civil war is, right? <laughs> this is, you start to get into what's the definition of is. Calling each other names on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I've been but fighting I, a I war think, for a long time. I'm I a think vet the, of the broadly wars. speaking, the message that he's saying is maybe worth listening to and thinking about a little bit. Josh Stonko says it's not a one third chance. It's a 40% chance. Hmm. Well, that's high. I, I don't know. That's I haven't done the analysis myself. As a, as seems a, to like come up that, with that level of specificity. <laughs> seems like it deviates from the base rate. There are a lot of other things that are much more impactful to society that are much more likely to occur than a civil war. Like just a big stock market crash has got to be a reasonable possibility at some point just because of the overvaluation and all of the other, you know, now that we've seen, I, I still think that the fact that the tech wreck is occurring under the covers and I don't know how it is not impacting the indexes, but evidently, you know, the big, the fang or whatever, whatever makes up the top of the, the index like that's they're still pretty big good companies growing pretty quickly and they're the bulk of the index so that means an index crashes -ish at this point 25 percent five it's crazy how big they are compared to everything else it's just hard to kind of wrap your head around unless you go like that apple's a three trillion dollar company there are plenty of companies in there that you know drops down pretty rapidly once you get outside those top five yeah Wow, Twitter's off five percent today. What's Pinterest down? Beefy Capital says the base rate in the 10%? US is 046 percent of the time. Is that for a civil war, Beefy? Twenty-four percent of the time. Point four six percent of the time. Oh, guys, tech is getting wrecked today. Did you guys know this? 
Yeah, I saw Ark was down quite a bit. That's that's one topic we need to talk about a little bit too. That is wild. It had a little rally yesterday. You see, Tesla was up more than 10% yesterday. 10% on a trillion dollar company. Well, it used to matter. <laughs> that's a hundred billion dollars. Like that's a that's an airline market cap. Um, yeah, that might be the whole airline industry market cap. <laughs> that's the other thing was that uh Toyota has now surpassed GM in terms of, I think it was number of cars sold in the States as the biggest automaker. And Ford had the best performed stock price of all the automakers last year. Yeah. Shout out to Bluth Capital on that. He was early on that. Um, I, you know, I was doing some work on Expel and I, I misframed. They make uh, like the wrap, they call a clear bra for, uh, for the uh, cars. And I misframed what I really think about it because I said, like, why isn't it massively cyclical? Uh, that's not really what I think. I guess what I really think is like deep into a deep into a run where the wealthy have gotten wealthier, wrapping their cars for ten thousand dollars seems like maybe they would do it. Is it ten thousand dollars to rep? Well, I hear it now the expel. People are going to be like, that's not what it is. I think it's like <laughs> six to eight to wrap a full car. I think you can get like a little strip for a couple hundred on your bumper. I don't know why anyone would do that. I think it's like two grand to do the front of your car. But like, I just, I don't know, man. You got to, you got to like A, really value your car or B, drive a really expensive car before like, the percentages seem to make sense to me. What is there? There's is a roller for... up here that's wrapped in in uh, like this black, purple, three dimensional color. Looks amazing with these like orange rims. I don't know who drives it. I've never seen him. I've just seen the car. Park. A what? It's a roller. It's like a uh, Rolls Royce. Oh, a wrapped nice. Rolls Royce. It's like black, but like the, when the sun hits it, it's like a purple kind of three dimensional color to it with these orange. They got some decals. dope shit, man. Dude, it's a cool looking. It's a very very cool looking car. Um, I just bought some Expel. I think it looks cheapish. I know that's not true. Um, that is true. I bought some Expel. You bought Expel? Yeah. Good for you. There you have it. That's not, I didn't think it would screen cheap. Yeah. Uh, the, um, I've never even heard of it. Expel? No. Oh, it's a massive. Really? Are you, are you, are you messing around? Mm -mm. All the, all the micro cap guys have been all over that for about five years. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, it's come uh, off a bit from its peak, though. It's worth having. It's pretty cool how you can turn your car matte with a wrap, too. I yeah. like that. It's cheaper can than you, painting. Can you peel like, that off some. at the end and, and hand back in a, a brand new car? Well, yeah, I think you can. I mean, now, I don't know. I mean, if you watch the videos on the internet, it's pretty impressive what you can do to that stuff before you actually damage the car. Now, I don't think, like, some guy will jab a key into a car. Um and you, yeah, you a sledgehammer at the window. Well, it's you gonna, can it's... dent the underline, <laughs> right? Like it won't strengthen your metal, right? But you can key it, and it protects your paint. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that those cars get keyed a lot. Well, if you're gonna get, if you're gonna key a car, like a Bentley is what you would key, right? Or one yeah. of these matte paint jobs. So, I kind of, I get it. I think I just don't know how to underwrite the growth. Um, let's talk about Arc Berkshire. Because um, Arc has Arc topped out at 156 bucks in um, February last year, and has uh, it closed out the year like in the 90s, I think. And then I saw today after the 
like it's off another 5% today. So it's like 91 last time I looked or something like that. Like that's a, that's a very, very big drawdown. It's like 35%. Someone wanted to do that calculation for me. And then uh, you contrast that with Berkshire on the other hand, which is up 35% a year. Like the differential in those two moves if as representative of value versus growth, like that's a, that's an extraordinarily big move that makes up for a lot like that. I don't know what the difference is. It's like 70%, something like that over the course of a year that, that washes away a lot of sins. Like you got to outperform by a lot for many, many years to catch up 70%. Uh, and then you can do it in, in one year. So I, I, I think it's uh, I think that's I'm like sure emblematic of what's happened looks, in the market. Looks pretty good still for Kathy. But it does. But if you were trying to imagine that that there was a regime change, then it might look a little like that. I thought I saw a good tweet. I, I just followed the guy, but I'm just blanking on the name a little bit. He said uh, Ark would have owned all fifty of the nifty fifty in the seventies. They would outperformed over the long term. Just had to make it. Did they? The Nifty Fifty did end up outperforming. Yes. From that, from that, is that right? Yes, it's correct. Well, you also had to live through a ninety percent drawdown, stay committed to the strategy, and end up having the time frame. But yes, if you just look at stats, they were. How long did it take to get you? Yeah, when was it measured from? Break even. Uh, I think it was like forty years. (laughs) <laughs> well that's uh, to be you. fair if you look at uh the paper that albert bridge put out that's how long value has uh underperformed so or 30 years. i said that just before you did yeah so you know it all depends where you're looking from shout out to drew by the way i like yeah, that he, paper he had a good uh he had a good chart storm did he yeah, he's, uh, the JT just shared that, that there's a there's a he makes the point that the um, the mul- there's been hu- the the fundamentals of growth have outperformed value in the US. He compares the US growth and value to European growth and value, and he makes the point that um, the fundamentals of growth have marginally outperformed value. Of, I forget the time period. Jake, was it like ten years? Uh, I think yeah, it's the last like ten. That. And then he but the multiple expansion has been massively bigger for growth in the US versus value. And then he looked at um, the European market because the fundamentals for growth haven't been as strong in Europe, but they have performed, they haven't performed as well as the US growth, but they've they've got much bigger, there's a much bigger premium for growth in in Europe than there is in in the US. So the most expensive stuff in the world is European growth, and the cheapest stuff in the world is European value. Interesting. So it's a, it's kind of a 99, even more so for the US uh, in Europe right now. Right. Value stock gigs is Jeremy Siegel did a study. I guess it's the nifty 50 at perform, but you had to hold for 25 years. Yeah. And I think he did that in like 98 or so. So, you know, you go peak to peak and whatnot, but it did end up outperforming. Let me do my let me do my topic. Yeah. Um, this is there's nothing like there's nothing particularly uh, stunning about this article. They just they they've gone and interviewed a whole lot of fund managers and said, "What do you think is going to work next year?" And uh, everybody's picked what sort of 
everybody's picked value, 23% value, 13% green, 11% small caps, 10% growth, 9.4% EM, US tech, 6.6%, other 25.5%. What's in that other? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is that equities? Uh, I guess it was equities. Yeah. Andrew Ang, head of factor investing at BlackRock, says you want to hold value in the long term because we'll go back to normalcy. That's basically my view too. But the uh, the real reason that I wanted to share this is there's this um, there's this widowmaker chart. I'll just this is this is high technology. I'm just going to hold it up. Oh, the, Jesus, the, does that work? No. Yes. <laughs> now we see it. <laughs> You get the idea. Basically, yeah. gross massively outperformed. But the really funny part is the name of that chart. They call it the Widowmaker. Global value shares fell to a record low versus growth peers in November. Move that over, is a Widowmaker trade down. Move over short JGBs. <laughs> We've got a new Widowmaker in town. <laughs> I thought it was like I thought Nat Gas was the Nat Gas was the Widowmaker. Oh, <laughs> uh, do you want to be part of the Widowmaker? Is that like a good? Contra, no. or is that no, not you good? make your no. wife a widow? Oh, okay. Not to mention, I mean, you know, I don't know what. Like, I'm looking through this uh, this Albert Bridge uh, thing. I mean, I don't know. It has just been a shitty thirty years for value. Yep, had a brief moment in between, like 2002 to 2007, but it's been pretty gnarly. It's been a one way one way street. Yeah. What's 30 years run us back to like the early 1990s, I guess, 1992 or something? Yeah, that's yeah. how the math works. Math now. checks out there. <laughs> that is how the math works. Well, when, when you go over the, to 99, 2000, it gets harder to do the math. Like I, I'm trying to do math with my kids. It's yeah, got to learn these things. Can't be done once you. <laughs> I mean, talk about reasons to stay in the market. Since 1980, the market has been up for the year 83% of the time. Yeah, that's wild, isn't it? Was that on that's since eighty? That's from Drew. That's from Drew's. Um... Yeah, since two thousand three, it's even more impressive. Only two down years with an average return of eleven point eight percent for the down and twelve Dow for twelve point eight for the S and P. He's got a good. So what Ken in there. Fisher always says. Ken Fisher's like, if you're going to get out of the market, you have to bet on down big, and the probability that you're right is like so low that it just doesn't make any sense. Because even down small, it doesn't really matter. Even down big, like here's the problem with getting it right down big is that you have to get back in. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's bloody impossible. And if you go and look at any, like you don't know, like whether it's a 2009 scenario or a March 2020 Second scenario. Second leg down. Or, ni- or, or 1929, like you just have no idea what the scenario is because it's all, you know, the overvaluation on the upside is irrational and it's entirely possible you see undervaluation on the other side that's completely irrational too. You know, there's that, there's that, I always attribute it to David Einhorn, but I don't know who it is, but it's like, like, what do you call a stock that's down 80% that proceeds to go down 90%? You know, that's for the person who invests down 80%, they lose half of their net worth riding it down from 80 to 90. So it's just that the reverse compounding is so brutal that, you really, it's just so hard to time it each way. You're better off just being, just expecting a 50% haircut like once a decade and just gritting your teeth through it. Yeah. Well, and this, I, this, I also, I mean, you know, for us growth. So the Russell value from 2009 to 2021 returned 292 or 292% Russell growth, 632 
S&P value, 298%, S&P growth, 602%. So you can, you can lose uh, 70% in a correction, pretty much break even there. I mean, not exactly. I know that math doesn't check out, but it's wild to see it in numbers. I like what Drew did. Thank you, Drew, for doing this. So I just don't know if you're going to pick like that. This is the year that value outperforms statistically. I think you're going against the tide. I'd rather pick the civil war <laughs> happening. <laughs> yeah. How did value do from 1860 to 1864? Strong. The tough years for value okay. have been like around tech. So 1825 was a tough one because of the, uh, the introduction of the steamship, steam, the steamship. <laughs> and the trains and then 1841 was the first tech revolution that was the um the introduction of the telegraph and there have been a few others there were like uh you know technology revolutions around cars that was the the great write-up that uh, came out of osam a little while ago when they're building up the infrastructure for uh for the for motor vehicles uh, it was tough for value because the tech stocks of the day were motor cars that's just unimaginable for for us today i i, I know I mean, this is a little bit of the problem with all of this stuff is like, all right, how many crashes, real, real crashes do we have to measure like a hand, like 10 or something? I don't know. It's probably a little higher than that, but the data set is not anywhere near robust enough to be able to draw much statistical inference. Uh, So there are dragons still statistically, I think. It's over a hundred years of data. I know, but the number of crashes in that. So what, what's the typical crash, right? Like, well, there is no typical when you have a small data set. It's a hundred years. What do you define a long data set as a thousand years? What are we talking? Geologic terms? Yeah. Depends, I mean, right? in the history of financial markets, a hundred years is like a pretty robust data set. I saw something that like the length yeah, of time for the average each currency year, is like 70 years. Each year on its own is not that statistically significant it's i'm saying like the epics within financial history have only been a small number of them so we don't have that much explanatory power i guess honestly i think crashes are made up by bears as marketing material (laughs) (laughs) it just don't fucking happen that often and like i know i know people love to talk about them but like they i think it's mostly because of the fear response and how people get clicks rather than reality they do come Fair around, enough. like they they ever they come around about once every seven years, no doubt. And uh, you know, you get the full um, then money printer go burr. Yeah, but what I've what I've generally observed is that for the most part, we've you know, well, this is easy to say because we're at all time highs now, but we've always gone back to. I think that the under you know when there's a Jeremy Grantham article uh, that a mate of mine sent through, um, and I just don't know if it's a recent one or if it's an older one. I didn't I didn't look at the date, but he's talking about the, his sister's pension. Does that, has anybody read that recently? No, I think it's called My Sister's Pension, something like that. Well, he's got he's got this. Well, he just says that he's run his sister's pension since 1968, and she's like got not she's not really interested in the market at all. So he's never like had to explain to her what's in there so he just has completely free hand in this account 
And it's and he contrasts it with his institutional investors who he has to justify what he's doing to them all the time and they don't like it. They want him to change allocations and things like that. And of course, his sister's account's done very well. He told her once what was in the account and she was just like, sell it all. So he never he never did that again. But he he makes the point that you know the underlying engine of stock market returns is ultimately GDP or you know what companies are earning. And he said that is incredibly stable over time. It's like basically it's, um, you know, it moves one or two percent in any given year. And then he contrasts that with the moves in stock prices, which can be like nineteen to twenty percent on average in any given year. Well, on average. And so he says, you know, you got twenty times the movement in. Yeah, the I think stock I saw it. Like he said, the- seventeen times, if I remember that paper right. That like I wrote that down times. at one point. Go go back and look at it nineteen okay. times. 19% versus 1%. That the the relative movement versus the price movement, like fundamental movement versus price movement. Right. And yeah. I, what what I have observed in is that every time that there's a gigantic sell off, like it sucks for that 18 months or the 2 years that you you endure it and you feel stupid and then you completely, you know, that that 18th I always talk about the 18th value or the the 18th rally that gets sold like that's when you just like ah oh, it doesn't matter anymore i'm going to go be something else i'm going to do another job <laughs> and then that's of course when it rallies but what always is what i have just eyeballed from the charts is that it, they seem to just sort of the portfolios run back up to where they would have been absent the crash and it's like the crash just sort of it's there but it's it's almost like you could just erase it from history for the most part you know, just, just rub it out and then just draw a dotted line from one part to the other part. And I, can, I guess if you can take that view about it, you do pretty well. Yeah. But it's hard to remember that for 18 months. I mean, I, 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 when I was, um, you know, marketing portfolios to people just after the 2009 crash, I'd, I'd talk to a lot of people who had, and this is like 2012, I'd talk to a lot of people who had sold out of, the market in 2009, basically at the bottom, like they'd taken 2007 was the, the half year crash that sucked. 2008 was an entire year of just getting punished, including Q4 of 2008 when the market was off like 12 or 14%. And so people just said, this is enough. I'm going to sell out here. And then they didn't get back in. And so the number of times that I talked to people who just missed the entire rally back, the entire bounce, it just it made me realize that what you've got to do is you've just got to find a way to stay invested. And if that means putting on a hedge, do that. If that means carrying cash, do that. If that means not looking at it, do that. Just whatever you can use to, to keep yourself in there and just know that basically it's not your fault. The market sells off 50% every 10 years or so. Yeah, but Robert Kiyosaki told me that he knows when it's going to happen. Is that Rich Dad Poor Dad? Yes. <laughs> just getting richer off more marketing. <laughs> When's it going to happen? I don't know. I need to subscribe to his well, uh, to be premium fair, service I, for 20 think, grand a year. I think in my Christmas special last year, I said it was uh, February. So there you go. February. Bang. Fe- February to August. I'll give that one for yeah. free. I don't, I don't know, man. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you hit on a key thing. Um, and like part of, part of why, I'm still working through why like this current drawdowns tough on me, but, but I know for a fact that part of what it was just like, I helped my mom buy a house. I had a couple cars that I bought. Uh, it's like a lot of, li- I'm starting to break ground on this other house. It's like a ton of liquidity going around. And the idea of needing to raise cash at a time when 
you know, things are selling off. I mean, that, that like, to me is the biggest sin that you can possibly make. So part of why I like British American tobacco is I get a reasonably good dividend yield. And what I really fundamentally believe is like cash coming in all the time. I know this is so boomer, but it like gives staying power. So sometimes optimal performance, I think uh, like running all out and trying to be optimal all the time can actually potentially could have put me in suboptimal outcomes where you're selling at the wrong time. So having cash plus some dividend stocks, even though, you know, maybe it out, it underperforms or whatever, I think over the long term is sort of what I've come up with. What about the tax efficiency of it? Like if you, if you looked at, you know, just some sort of program where you sold, like what's the, I know you're getting a big dividend yield on, on British American tobacco. So it might not, this, this may not work, but you know, you can, you can sell say 4% of your holdings every year and you get long-term capital gains treatment for that. Whereas if you're clipping a big dividend, you're paying uh, a higher rate. Yeah. I look, I'm sure I have a suboptimal outcome. I have a suboptimal brain. I mean, you could put it across like whatever, whatever um, portfolio of positions that you like, there's probably an ETF or something that matches that. And then you could just sell off some, fixed portion of that quarterly or something like that. And then you're getting, you're paying tax at a, at a. Yeah. But I think Bill's hit hit on an important aspect in that his there's kind of the engineering answer. And then there's also sort of the human answer and what the engineering answer would be optimizing. Like you're talking about Toby, but the human answer for him is that containing or continuing his ownership in a way where it's not being diluted by selling lets him stay in that game for longer than he might otherwise. Uh, And there's almost like we've talked before about slack in systems and finding new levels of optimization by having slack, you know, having a little bit of slack in the, the mathematical part of the optimization might be allowing a psychological maximum to be achieved through uh, you know, being able to retain his ownership and collect the dividend, even though if it's not as tax efficient. Yeah. Well, and also I think it's like, do I actually think that I would sell 4% in the middle of a crash and that I would actually only sell 4% in the top, like during a mania? And would I be able to actually know, like, I just don't, you know, the execution of a theoretical answer is the hard part. And I am trying to figure out what I can execute, not what's right. Can't you automate some of that stuff like with, uh, I, I don't want to say the old oh, betterment, betterment used to, did, didn't they like, there was a way that you could automate tax loss selling and a whole lot of other stuff in there. And you, that might've been one of those things. I'm, I'm a big fan of automation. I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I'm not, I'm not criticizing the, uh, the approach just, just in the sense, just, I think you can achieve the same ends in a different way, maybe in a more yeah. efficient way. But well, I'm you built your own ETF advisor. and I'm an idiot. So that's the difference between the two <clears> of us. Can't talk about that. <laughs> Well, that is factually what you did. Don't let compliance. compliance You don't have to hide for the fact that you did that, do you? Like, I mean, that's what I'm saying, right? Like you optimize to a structure. Listen, you can promise 40% a year and there's no (laughs) no issues. Yeah, there's some some bullish marketing of ETFs out there. I'm always impressed because my my compliance would not let me get any of that through. I mean, you talk about compliance, you're behind, you're in front of an acquirer's funds thing. It's not as if this is some secret that you have an that's, ETF. That's the firm. Okay. That's the firm name. What does the so, firm do, Toby? 
What would so you say you do here? It's a, it's a registered investment advisor. Okay. All right. My apologies. I, I'm just I not allowed really to discuss. You're not allowed to discuss securities. Otherwise, that, that triggers the Securities and Exchange Commission. Solicitation. Yeah. Okay. Solicitation. I don't know. You the can, rules. Like if you if you structure if you structure the same portfolio as a managed as a separately managed account, you can talk about it as much as you want. All I know is that I am not you, and I am trying to solve for me, and I have a lot of problems. <laughs> so I'm just trying to work around my problems. It, we're, we're all mates. We're working through it. We've got three blue zip up pullovers, and we're we're uh, we're solving we're solving those problems. Preventing civil war, <laughs> and I, I, I'd rather pick civil war over over value. <laughs> JT, do you want to do your? Do you want to? Do, I think we, have, we haven't done your. We haven't done your veggies yet. Yeah, let's uh, let's jump into some EO Wilson. Um, I don't know. Are you guys familiar with him much? I don't know if you've ever. I know the name, but I don't know who it, who, who that is. <clears throat> it's really oh. cool. Uh, you know, he was born in 1929, so he had a really long run. He died this just like two weeks ago or so. Uh, and if you're interested in, in more learning more about him, he there's this uh, 2015 PBS documentary called Of Ants and Men that was uh, really good. I, I enjoyed it a lot. But he uh, he grew up in Mobile, Alabama. And as a kid, he was like, I think he was eight years old. He was fishing and a spine of a fish that he caught poked him right in the eye. And oh. he ended up being blind in that eye for the rest of his life. And and as a kid, he really liked nature and, and especially bird watching actually, but because he only had one eye, like he didn't have stereoscopic vision anymore. Like bird watching doesn't really work as well if you only have one eye, but, but that led then to him. He had actually like really acute vision in the one remaining eye, like it became supercharged sort of. And so he had like 2010 vision and that, it, and, and he could see things up close really well. So he ends up looking at the ground more and studying insects. And he really gets into insects as a kid. Um, and I, I love any kind of story where someone's weakness gets turned into an eventual strength. And I, I think this is a really cool example of that. Um, anyway, he, his parents also divorced when he was around seven and he was sent to a, to a military camp apparently because he was kind of a troublemaker. Uh, <laughs> but he figured out that he, really early on that he wanted to study insects. And and he, he had this wondrous relationship with nature through his entire life. And you could just even, you know, they, they show him wandering around out in the woods, you know, when he's 90 years old and like, you just see the joy of a child on his face the whole time. And I, I don't know, it's really, uh, I find it very inspiring to see people that are so authentic to themselves that way. Um, but anyway, he gets into what's called uh, myrmecology, which is, I guess, the study of ants. And he, he lists a bunch of cool facts about ants, like, supposedly ants weigh four times. If we took all of the ants on earth and put them into a pile, it'd be four X the weight of all the land vertebrates. Um, I mean, there's just, there are something like 10,000 trillion ants on earth, uh, which is kind of a number that makes you. Pause your mind. Uh, yeah. Wilson did uh, <laughs> one by one. <laughs> um, but he, he had this like a curiosity and a real scientific mindset that gave him lots of insights over time that actually, you know, starting off with ants leading then into other social complex things like the human. And like he could see a lot of hu the human condition from his study of ants, which I think is interesting. Uh, and he observed that we share the, the desire like ants to build complex societies. Um, and so in the 1950s, he was a professor at Harvard for 40 years. And 
he knew that ants must have some form of communication with each other. But at that time, no one knew what it was like. We didn't know how it worked. And he discovered through his research, 20 different pheromones that the ants use to communicate. And there's kind of, he like basically went through dissecting ants and crushing an, an individual organ inside of the ant and then seeing how it reacted, what, how the ant would react. And there's this cool thing in the, in the documentary where you see him kind of like smearing like a, a, like an S line. And, and then all of a sudden you see the ants like start to like root around onto that S line. And so it was like the pheromone that the ants used to lay a track to like where, you know, where they found food. Um, so shifting gears a little bit in, if you guys in Krakatoa, are you guys familiar with this volcanic explosion in 1883, uh, supposedly killed like 36,000 people, the loudest explosion ever recorded on earth. They, they could hear it 5,000 miles away in the Indian ocean. Um, and it was something like 10,000 times Hiroshima. Um, but anyway, it destroyed all life on the Island and it, but it created this novel experiment where how do species repopulate a new niche? How do, and how do they find dominance in this fresh new area? And scientists at the time realized, you know, this was like a really interesting uh, natural experiment taking place. So they all, a lot of people went there to like go learn and observe and see like, well, how does nature sort of fill this vacuum that was created by Krakatoa? Well, Wilson ends up doing his own kind of mini version of this. He went down into the Florida Keys and he found several islands and they put like basically these tents over them. They're little tiny mangrove uh, little islands and they fumigated those islands and basically like killed everything was on the island. And then they came back and observed how does nature fill this niche? It's a real again? nature love with this guy. All right. Yeah, I mean, this. <laughs> sometimes you got to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Toby, come on. Um, but it turns out that there are mathematical equations that are derivable based on that predict the number of species relative to the size of the island, and this has a, like pretty big implications for conservation. So if you know if you figure you know, humans developing new areas and we create these little, you know, kind of biological islands sometimes. Well, the size of them actually matters a lot to how much, how many species will live in that area and like thrive and therefore like how much biodiversity might we expect? So, and actually Wilson invented the word biodiversity, by the way. Um, so I, this got me thinking about like in a business context and like, let's say that there's a new area opening up, I don't know, cannabis or electric vehicles or whatever the hell the du jour it is for today. But, um, you know, like is, would, could you make the analogy that the profit pools that will eventually be available sort of represent an Island? And it might then tell us like how many different businesses could we expect to, to thrive in that size of a, of an Island. And, you know, you think about, let's take it on one end of the extreme, like how many lemonade stands could your neighborhood support? Like it, that's probably a relatively small profit pool. Um, that would be like a tiny mangrove Island that wouldn't support a lot of different, but then I don't know, like what are the biggest, the five biggest industries on planet earth? And I, I happen to look it up. Um, so number five is life and health insurance. Four is e-commerce, three commercial real estate, two construction and one financial services. So maybe perhaps like those are the biggest you know, sort of islands, if you will, uh, today. Uh, but who knows if they'll, they'll be that tomorrow, like these things tend to turn over as well. So a um, couple other interesting facts, like Wilson estimated that there are 10 million species on earth and we've only identified like 2 million of them. So we're at like 20% sort of recognition of the actual total number of species, which is kind of mind boggling when you think about like, I don't know, it feels like if you were to just guess at how many species you'd be like, oh, we probably got like 90% of them at this point, right? <laughs> 
Um, so Wilson how'd you also, know? how'd you know what you don't know? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I think maybe like a rate of discovery or something. I'm not sure how you would know that. Sorry. Is it cut you off? Keep going. No, that's okay. Um, so Wilson also has this idea called U social. It's E U S O C I A L. And it's, it's, it's a, uh, it's a concept where, uh, th- here's how you define it. Like it's a group of individuals that live together at least two generations worth. The adults care for the young and the reprodu- there's a reproductive division of labor. And it's almost as if this, there's a single super organism that operates on its, with its own kind of hive mind. And so we've discovered 19 sort of eusocial lines and 16 of them are insects. And it happens that humans are the only primate that is a eusocial that checks the boxes to be eusocial. So you can start to see how Wilson's insights of studying ants for 50 years led him to have these observations about humans later in his career. Uh, and it turns out that this eusocial approach is highly productive. And like, so ants and termites and humans, they dominate their niches that they, that they exist in. And so he started to wonder if natural selection could work not just at the gene level, which was the, the predominant theory, but also kind of at the colony level as a whole. Um, and it became very controversial in social sciences. Uh, Richard Dawkins was very uh, against it. You know, he's the, the author of The Selfish Gene, which was a much more gene-specific version. Uh, Stephen Jay Gould, lots of other people. Um, but, and Wilson has this kind of funny thing. He said that in reference to ants, Karl Marx was right. Socialism works. It's just that he had the wrong species, which is kind of funny. Um, so it, like Wilson also created his own like whole new discipline, which is called sociobiology. And uh, he, his, the hypothesis was that behaviors might evolve in the same way that your anatomy would evolve due to social, due to uh, like evolutionary pressures. And what's crazy is that like people did not want to hear that this was applied to humans at that time. Like psych- psychologists believe that we learned from culture only. There wasn't any nature. It was, uh, or it was all nurture. There was no nature. Um, in fact, like there were demonstrations against his classes. People came in and like poured water on him in the middle of his class, uh, picketing his class. Like he was a target in a, in a big way, which is, it's really funny to see because like, when you hear him speak and, you know, you, you see the things that he was writing at the time, like there is, it's hard to imagine a more gentle natured soul than this guy. And meanwhile, he's like the target of all of these radicals. Uh, but what ended up happening was that he made it safe for later researchers to explore things about human nature that, that now we sort of all take for granted. Um, and he proposed this idea of group selection over, and, or also called kin selection, over sort of the, not just the survival of the fittest individual, but it's also the survival of the fittest group and how they work together. Uh, and so like op- evolution is operating at multiple levels. And he has this really nice quote that, I, that is cool. It's like, within groups, selfish individuals win. However, groups of altruistic individuals always beat groups of selfish individuals. So, um, it, you know, and like when you think about like sports, for instance, like it, that totally makes sense in a, in a sub, in a way of like thinking about group selection, like it's a, it's really like a ritualization of war. Uh, you know, like we, you think about like a college rivalry, like, you know, like Bill, what did it, what did Alabama and Auburn games look like in college for you? Uh, people got shot (laughs) literally. Yes. Okay. Wow. That's even more extreme than I would have guessed. 
not all the time, but definitely one of the years somebody got shot in a bar. I think the reason was they said, uh, I think they said that like a shot that Robert Ori hit against the uh, Chris Weber Kings. Yeah. I think they said that was a worse defeat than uh, an Auburn, Alabama defeat that had just occurred and they got shot. <laughs> wow. That's wild. <laughs> right, yeah, it was so. crazy. People take it seriously down there. It's not, it's, that's not the base rate, but there's hatred. Yeah, no doubt. So like fuck what, Alabama. What do they call that? The, uh, the iron bowl. Yeah. Okay. So I like to call it good versus evil. <laughs> so here we're seeing tribalism expressed in, before our very eyes. Uh, but it kind of gets you thinking, like, which companies out there are sort of like creating a group selection? Like, where are they creating sort of tribes within their their customers, within their employees? Uh, and, you know, when the power of humans, that you social element takes over, uh, like, I think it can lead to some very radical outcomes. Maybe Peloton for you, Bill, is a, is a potential idea that fits in with that. Yeah. I think they got a little bit of a tribe thing going on. Lululemon certainly did. So one um, last uh, one last quote I'll give you from from E.O. Wilson that I really liked. Uh, and by the way, like he he wrote several like obviously he did a ton of research, but he wrote he wrote a lot. He was a and uh, he wrote I think he won two Pulitzer Prizes uh, for nonfiction, um, and he won whatever the equivalent is for. It's the it's not the Nobel Prize, but they have a, a version of that for his field and he won that. But anyway, uh, so here's here's Wilson. The early stages of creative thought, the ones that count, do not arise from jigsaw puzzles of specialization. The most successful scientist thinks like a poet, wide ranging, sometimes fantastical and works like a bookkeeper. And I like the idea that that we like if you want to be a real scientist about whatever it is that you're working on, uh, you know, like maybe getting away from specialization sometimes and, and thinking a little bit broader and, and like having some creativity and, you know, maybe thinking like a poet, I guess was what he would say, uh, might read to some interesting insights and then working hard, like diligently, like a bookkeeper about it. So I don't know. It resonated with me for some reason, maybe cause I'm a dork, but, um, uh, Oh dude, this motherfucker, Chase Jones, you're not a motherfucker, but you just reminded me some asshole, a Bama fan killed our trees. At Tumor's Corner, we had these old trees. This jerk poisoned them and killed them and then called up the radio and bragged about it. Thanks, Chase. You just ruined my day. There's a podcast about that. I yeah, really. the guy's a dick. Or it might have been a... Sorry, excuse me. <clears throat> that might have been like a sports center 30 for 30 or something like that. Anyway, something that I was... It was 30, 30 for 30. I, I, something I was thinking about, Jake, is like, as you were talking about the maximum amount, amount of like species, there's uh, Spanish moss down here or like lionfish also do this. Uh, like where I am, people really want to kill lionfish and eat them because they just like destroy everything around yeah. them. And, uh, and Spanish moss is the same way. It just grows like this weed. And uh, I just feel like the bigger these companies get and the more influence they have over Washington, the more I feel like they're lionfish and Spanish mm. moss and the less that I feel like the ecosystem can thrive. Like, I really think that big business and big Washington has just gotten too far. I think, now, I don't know what the answer is other than to reduce the role of government, but uh, there's this, problem. there's this parody account. It's not a parody account. It's I, I, it turns out it's all, she's being truthful, but Elizabeth Warren has this account where she's been going after big meat. Yeah. 
and big. Like if you go and look at the things that she's targeted, like they've got no margin. There's not, they're not making any money in these businesses. Yeah, grocery like not, stores. Yeah. She's a moron when it comes to this stuff. You could go and you could go and rank all of the businesses that are listed in the States by like gross profitability. And there are a handful of names at the top that probably uh, really do have an outsized influence and really are um, gouging consumers and probably not great for everybody. And they don't seem to attract any attention. I don't get it. Like, why does it, why does it, Cough, healthcare. Well, yeah, look, I will give her this. Like the chicken industry is very consolidated and it is kind of an old boys club. But when it wasn't, they, yeah, they would lose so much money. Like it has to be that consolidated for them to make money. So I don't know. Uh, I always have problems too when she complains about like capitalists and raising prices. And I'm like, what do you think pension funds are invested in? Like pension funds need returns. You just want to give those returns away. Good luck fulfilling the obligations. You know what? Speaking of that, I saw an interesting source for this. Actually, I was reading uh, Les Schwab's autobiography, which is uh, the guy who was like founded a tire shop. And um, he he had this interesting idea, actually, that he thought that there should, you should the government should not be able to enter in, into any kind of contract that has a cost of living adjustment in it. So- hmm. If you, you know, like if we, if we put the, that, that uh, constraint on it to where like, sorry, you're, there is no COLA adjustment for your, whatever it is that you're trying to do, like, boy, do they all of a sudden maybe start minding the monetary uh, side of things a little bit more, right? Cause it's like, well, I'm just going to pass that inflation through in my COLA. I don't care about this. Do you think uh, they understand? Do you think they understand it? Uh, I think you Who? understand it more when you watch your actual cost of living go up and your no adjustment on your pension. I think it starts to get real. You like the less you understand real. it. Well, the people writing those contracts. Yeah, I think they understand everything. I just don't think they care because their incentives aren't to care. It's to promise a bunch of shit to people. It's pathetic. Politics. What a joke. We really are ruled by children. When I see some yeah, stuff it's scum- comes up. It's, it's scummy people want to go into politics, unfortunately. But I mean, it's just so disgusting. I found the Warren thing really, really weird. Like, why go after meat? Is that, is that they're like, is the thought process like, oh, people are going into the supermarkets and then every time they go to buy meat, the meat's really expensive. So we're going we're gonna to tap into that growing anger with, with meat producers. Is there yeah, actually- Yeah, it's just uh, populism in another form. From, yeah, like from- this isn't even first order thinking, it's zero order thinking. <laughs> I shouldn't say scummy people go into politics. I think scummy people are successful in Succeeded politics. politics. That's, yeah, that's different. Yeah. Yeah, because you got to have no soul. I mean, if you talk about the, like, the, the, the biggest names, the ones that we've been talking about all the time, right? These gigantic companies that are just, like, I don't think that Apple's too... Um, I don't think that Apple's too aggressive, but then they might be using slave labor to build some of this stuff. So maybe I'll take that back. hundred percent. They're doing stuff. That's like messed up. Why are we going after big meat? Dude, their phones were made by a company that had to have nets around it. So people wouldn't jump to their death. I mean, and this is straight back in and keep on making those phones. (laughs) Yeah. Like how the batteries are mined. Like, like, come on, get out of here. It's nonsense. Just no one actually cares. It's the same thing like when Nike was busted for child labor and people were like, all right, well, as long as my Nikes are only 80 bucks. 
Like nobody actually so cares about human life as long as they don't have to see it. It's sad. It's a right. I'm a real downer today. 2022 is supposed to be good. This is what happens when I give up booze. I get bring on the angry. civil war. We need catharsis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the odds have gone up. Maybe raise yeah. on something. Forty percent sounds kind of low now. <laughs> the civil war, though, doesn't. The funny thing is, it's not like it's geographic. It's. Oh, I guess it is a little bit now with like the COVID stuff has made Florida's kind of open and everybody, Texas is open, everybody else is closed. But um, yeah, where does it break down? Does he have a? Uh... Does he have lines battle drawn? It'd be a weird, it wouldn't, it wouldn't oh, be I don't know. intuitive, right? Like you'd be two houses next door to each other. It'd be fighting each other. Yeah. I don't know. It's gotta be, I, I bet it would be among economic uh, polarity or something. I don't know. A cold, give all my shit a cold civil war. Fight the good thing we war. do have going for us is that we've gotten so lazy that we're, we're too lazy to bother going to try to kill each other. We're just going to like see what's on Netflix instead. <laughs> I'll be on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be the states that have got all the guns that win, right? California's California's in deep shit. Florida will be all right. Florida's going to be okay. Texas At least where I okay. am. Do we have time to squeeze in a couple questions before uh, timers up? Boss? Yeah, that'd be that'd be good. Yeah, I, that's John John McGuire's got print ten trillion and blame the meat companies when prices go up. Yeah, that's that's my, like. Increase the, the amount of dollars that are floating around by 40% over a year or so. And then well, prices go up and, 40%. It's just like, how did that happen? It's just a mystery to me. And allow a bunch of consolidation. Yeah, But they don't make any money, those businesses. Like you need them I consolidated so they don't fail. But I'm forget about the meat company. That's like a moronic statement. I'm just saying like broader issues. In general. Yeah. But the things like, like Google's not really an anti- it's not really an acquire. I mean, it is an acquire, but it's not. It's, it hasn't rolled itself up to its dominant size. Yeah, well, that's where of, I think it gets harder when you build a dominant machine, or like Amazon, which is using internal cash to develop uh, dominance. That I think is a harder question because I think that should be rewarded. Acquiring dominance, I think, is different, and I don't know why I have that distinction in my head, but yeah. I do. Yeah, I don't necessarily have a problem with them being that being that size, but the, I guess the issue is that they they're clearly like exercising some editorial. Um, you know, they have a point of view that they express through YouTube, and and Twitter has a point of view that it allows expressed. It's just it seems strange to me that there are some experts out in some of these areas that just you know you, you can't uh, the expert isn't allowed to express their opinion. Twitter knows better. That just seems bizarre to me. Took fifty eight minutes, but we got demonetized. There we yeah. go. We did it. <laughs> we did it. 2022 is off to a great start. We got that 25 pound Whoa. Guinness. Yeah, that Guinness is sweet. Shout out to you. I think we owe heat. Well, it's going to be a, it's going to be quite a session. I think Colin's there are now only few. eight slots available to listen to. We have reduced <laughs> it from 10 total listeners to nine. Two slots go to him. <laughs> That's watch us get sued for antitrust for that. Yes, we're narrowing our own TAM. If you're you saying that Facebook's not Facebook's not harming consumers, you got cool. FB, Google, consumers are not harmed by those products. I don't know about Facebook, Meta, as it's Oof. civil war in the metaverse. Yeah, I think you that's know. Right, I'll tell you what, I've been yeah. chewing up this Lex Fridman uh, pod. He also uh, interviewed the guy that started uh, Instagram. That's a fantastic, yes. fantastic interview. That was good. That I would like highly recommend people listen to. 
I don't like finding other podcast hosts that I like because they're competition. <laughs> Fuck that. But uh, I am happy he does it. There's a little bit of competition out there. Yeah. There's... Turns out it's a competitive field. It turns out any jabroni can just get a microphone and record. And oh, Samson wants to know which sometimes month is the recession this year. I don't know. Yeah. Speaking of which, sometimes I say stuff and I'll get DMs that people are like, how could you say that? I, I think people need to listen to me very carefully. I am an idiot. Okay. <laughs> if the you Joe think Rogan so, defense. Yeah. If you think so, guess what? You're probably right. And I welcome the DM. Now, if I get a little bit upset, and I shut you down in the DM, I would like it if you don't post my DM publicly <laughs> without context because that lacks social awareness. But whatever, do your thing. This is my two cents on that topic. Oh, uh, yeah. Beefy says Facebook doesn't harm people under antitrust law. Yep, I'm with you. I agree. I think they might be, I think they might be like the tobacco companies, though, the tobacco CEOs up there having to justify. They had no knowledge. Tobacco, they're like the last people in America to know that tobacco <laughs> caused lung cancer. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I don't have a view one way or the other. It's full time. The hood is blind. There's no overtime. It's not soccer. Thanks, fellas. We'll see you next week. Good to see everybody. Have a good one, folks.